Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're glad to have you back with us. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borshuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human? and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. Earlier this month, the New York Times ran a feature story about the musicians who work for the Metropolitan Opera and the hardships they have endured since 2020 amid an extended furlough period brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. As the Met remains shuttered, many of these musicians have left New York or retired from playing entirely. Moreover, in December, the company locked out its nearly 300 stagehands. This came after the stagehands' union rejected a proposed set of pay cuts intended to steer the Met through this ongoing, economically insecure period. All of these details were a reminder of the perilous materiality of the creative professions, of art's relationship to the vicissitudes of the world at large, In the 16th century, the Italian painter and historian Giorgio Vasari explained this relationship theologically. In his Lives of the Artists, that is, Vasari suggests that the material world was the sublime point of intersection between the artist and his creator. The origin of these arts, Vasari writes, was nature herself, and the inspiration or model was the beautiful fabric of the world. At the end of the last century, the novelist and cultural critic Albert Murray argued that jazz and blues music provided its devotees with equipment for living, a phrase Murray borrowed from the critic Kenneth Burke. In the life-affirming ritual of listening and dancing to black musical improvisation, we might find a model to transform hardship into celebration as we make our way through this volatile world. Murray certainly wasn't alone in seeing the relationship between jazz as creative expression in its surrounding context. As the great bebop saxophonist Charlie Parker once remarked, if you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. On today's show, we'll reflect about creativity in context as we continue to visit with the Humanities Center's most recent cohort of alumni college fellows. All this semester, we're arranging those scholars into academic panels under the banner New Perspectives On. Today, New Perspectives on Art, Aesthetics, and the World at Large. We'll hear from professors of dance, anthropology, and English literature as they display for us how their research considers creative work not as an abstract phenomenon, but as intimately connected to material conditions, everyday use, and the nuanced transactions that shape our place in broad society. All of this after a short break. Did you know that you can donate directly to the Humanities Center at Texas Tech? Gifts to our Excellence Fund supplement the generous funding we receive from the President's Office, the Provost's Office, and the Office of the Vice President for Research and Innovation. Your gift supports the free programming we offer, including online seminars, local film showings, art exhibitions, and a wide array of visiting speakers. 
Donations also help promote faculty research like that featured on today's show, or allow us to support graduate students in the humanities by funding participation in national conferences and seminars. And it helps pay for this show. If you're interested in donating to the Humanities Center, please visit our website, humanitycenter.ttu.edu, and click on the big red donate button on the front page. Thank you. First up on the show today is Allie Duffy. Dr. Duffy is a President's Excellence in Teaching Fellow and Associate Professor of Dance. She is also the founder and artistic director of the Flatlands Dance Theater, a professional nonprofit dance company. In her recent work, Allie interrogates the expectations on professional dancers who are also working mothers. As she tells us here, this research works through the cultural and institutional implications for those women who, as Allie puts it, are dancing parenthood. Hi, my name is Dr. Allie Duffy, and I'm an associate professor of dance at Texas Tech, and this is Dancing Parenthood, Negotiations of Bodies, Artistry, and Careers. Women working in dance careers negotiate many conceptual and practical issues when deciding whether or not to have children and how to manage both family and career. Timing of pregnancy, undertaking parenting responsibilities within the framework of rigid job requirements and promotion systems, making space for dance and family life to coexist, negotiating expectations and roles, adapting to bodily changes in relation to the physicality of performing and teaching, and managing finances all deeply affect women in dance professions. At the time of this writing, American women face untenable conditions as they grapple with simultaneous professional and personal demands. These are not new to women, but recently became even more fraught in the face of a global pandemic that set inequities between working mothers and working women without children in even starker contrast. The arts economy suffers, and most dance artists, if not out of work entirely, sense that more cuts will be made to the arts and arts education in the coming years as the U.S. struggles to regain economic losses. Many scholars and journalists are already sensing inequities facing parents, and especially mothers, who disproportionately take on the bulk of the, quote, invisible labor. Though women's career responsibilities have proliferated over the last 60 years, their household responsibilities have not necessarily decreased. Data indicate that being the parent of a young child affects women's workplace hours, but not men's, and that when a husband and wife are both employed full-time, the mother tends to do 40% more childcare and about 30% more housework than the father. The myth of the, quote, ideal worker as a professional who works constantly, never says no, and prioritizes work over all else is stubbornly maintained across disciplines. But for caregivers, who are still more often women, this trope sets up an impossible standard. Another major issue is a fundamental lack of support for mothers in the workplace. The Family Medical Leave Act of 1993 grants only 12 weeks of unpaid leave for women to care for a newborn or other family member. However, many women cannot afford to take an unpaid leave, and those who take time off from their careers often find reentry difficult and often enter at a lower level than the level they left, making it that much more difficult to advance. Another persistent assumption is that women with young children are perceived as lazy, less committed to their work, or unreliable, and are therefore excluded from opportunities. Income inequality and the concept known as the feminization of poverty affects women in every industry and at every organizational level. When women entered the workforce, their rates of poverty and economic status declined significantly and disproportionately compared with working men. This phenomenon can be attributed to biases in the workplace related to gender expectations and assumptions. 
It is also well-documented that women in dance are afforded fewer opportunities for highly paid positions in leadership, are awarded fewer grants and awards, and have fewer opportunities for advancement and career longevity than their male peers. These inequalities are compounded for women in dance who have children. The quote, motherhood penalty, describes a phenomenon in which pregnant women and mothers are stigmatized and disadvantaged. In dance, the motherhood penalty is compounded by two facts specific to the field. Number one, that dance is competitive and disproportionately comprised of women, so they are treated as expendable and replaceable. And two, that pregnancy and motherhood change the dancing body, which is required to maintain a certain appearance and level of specialized functionality. These issues specific to dance put even greater pressure on pregnant women and mothers working in it. Spurred by these complex issues, I began a qualitative study to explore this important topic. Throughout the year 2020, I surveyed and interviewed 205 women who had experienced pregnancy and or motherhood while working in dance. I asked a series of open-ended questions related to participants' experiences negotiating physicality, artistry, parental leave, job opportunities, stability, pre- and postnatal bodily experiences, and workplace relationships during pregnancy and motherhood. A comprehensive and wide-ranging analysis of this data will be published in my forthcoming book, Dancing Motherhood, Contexts and Perspectives of 21st Century Women. But for now, let me unpack a few of the major emergent themes as described by my participants. Dancers' livelihoods largely depend upon their ability to maintain a consistent bodily appearance and highly physical and stylized performance. Many of the participants described a, quote, pregnancy stigma they experienced. A series of perceptions, assumptions, judgments, and actions taken based on their pregnancy status. Many discussed concealing their pregnancies as long as possible in order to keep working at the same level, at the same intensity, without judgment or negative perceptions from others. Participant 107, a professional dancer in a regional ballet company, asserted that once colleagues and supervisors discovered she was pregnant, most treated her as fragile and incapable during the pregnancy. Participant 92 claimed, quote, I was not permitted to teach studio courses during pregnancy, despite having no complications. The false assumptions about what a pregnant body can and cannot do safely and effectively seem to impact many of the women in this study who thought they'd be trusted to make decisions for their own bodies and their own well-being. Another major issue related to pregnancy that recurred in the participant data relates to the perception that pregnant women and mothers are unreliable, that they do not take their careers seriously. A seasoned company dancer, participant 54, stated, quote, one of my directors was disappointed that I decided to get pregnant during the season. I wasn't surprised, but disappointed by their reaction based on the mission of the company to be diverse and inclusive. A tenured professor in a private college in the Southeast asserted, quote, I was passed over by my supervisor for advancement. She told me explicitly that she thought I should focus on motherhood. Making matters even more complex is the idea that dancers are hired to fulfill artistic expectations, and those may differ depending on the mission and culture of each company. Multiple participants described supervisors commenting on their body's weight, shape, and overall appearance in negative ways during their pregnancies. One dancer, at the time working in a New York-based, nationally renowned ballet company, shared that a fellow dancer asked her with a horrified expression, how can you do this to your body? And another performer in a contemporary dance company described being removed from several performances when she was pregnant because her body was said to be, quote, aesthetically inappropriate by both female and male directors. Opportunities for job security, advancement, and long-term stability are rare for everyone in the dance field and are even scarcer for pregnant women and mothers. 
Many participants described having contracts rescinded, being removed from roles, and being overlooked for promotions and special opportunities because of these faulty assumptions. Some of the most harrowing examples of discrimination and unequal treatment came from those in the post-secondary dance education sector. A tenure-track assistant professor in a research university in the Southwest asserted, quote, I could have chosen to go the route of a legal harassment case. I was told most deans wouldn't approve of a pregnant faculty, that this might affect your tenure process. I was not tenured yet. And I hope when I retire, someone else gets pregnant and puts you through the stress you are putting me through. I was fairly isolated in my department, and I was too terrified to speak up. Performers and choreographers described an environment unsuited for dancing mothers and workplaces unprepared to meet their needs. Most participants described being offered no formal parental leave, inadequate space and time for breastfeeding, no childcare support, little to no employer-provided medical insurance, and no physical rehabilitation or postpartum care support. Relationships with coworkers were cited by these participants as being very important to either the ease or difficulty of their experiences in pregnancy and motherhood. The support of other mothers was cited as hugely important to creating positive work environments. Participants described their coworkers who were also mothers as being the most helpful to their continued sense of belonging and for providing support during their pregnancies and the especially intense early months and years of motherhood. On the flip side of these positive experiences, they also describe the impact of negative experiences with coworkers. Some describe their child-free colleagues as hostile, unhelpful, mean, bullying, and even toxic when relaying experiences about their pregnancies, parental leave, childcare needs, scheduling limitations, and bodily changes related to pregnancy. Participant 152 stated, quote, I've become more aware of how unaware non-parents or even many male parents are of the experience of motherhood and how this impacts every aspect of one's teaching, working, schedule, and artistry. Even in workplaces that did have the infrastructure to support women's needs in pregnancy and motherhood, many women described managers who were unaware of women's legal rights and organizational privileges once they became pregnant. To that end, many of the participants found themselves forced into the position of having to educate their bosses in order to claim their rights. The most often cited needs the participants described that workplaces could implement included, number one, on-site child care or funded child care. Two, proper medical support, including insurance, mental health care, and postpartum physical rehabilitation. Three, attention to and respect for scheduling needs of parents. Four, paid parental leave and postpartum recovery leave. And five, greater attention and funding support and artistic merit for staged works that normalize the pregnant body and topics related to pregnancy and motherhood. Because each dance professional faces unique circumstances during their careers, it is critical that the field rise to meet the needs of those working in it. The large and small scale issues of inequality and accessibility that participants in this research face point to needed change. The women featured here describe their needs best. Participant 107 said, quote, see us, know we're here. Don't pressure me to hide my maternal status. Assume I'm capable and multifaceted. Assume dance is my career, not a hobby. And participant 29 states, quote, systemic change to empower dancers toward ownership over their physicality, their time, their creativity, and their sensual lives is essential for many aspects of dancers' health and certainly relating to pregnancy and motherhood. It seems to me that if the people I'm working with are considering me as a person rather than a line on a budget or a body in a picture, there is generally room for conversation and collaboration. If not, as a mother, I now avoid those people and situations. Thank you, Allie. Our next guest, Michael B. Jordan, is an associate professor of cultural anthropology. 
Dr. Jordan's recent scholarship looks at Native American beadwork from the Southern Plains. Michael's discussion of his research here helps us think about art as both an aesthetic object and a cultural repository. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Jordan, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Texas Tech University. I'm also a research associate at both the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History. I'm excited to have this opportunity to share my ongoing research on the Denver Museum of Nature and Science's collection of Native American beadwork. Before I get started, I would like to acknowledge that the research that I will be discussing today has been funded by awards from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, or DMNS, as well as the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. First, I'll be briefly discussing the origins of this project and providing some background regarding my work with Indigenous communities. Then, we'll look at some of the things that we've learned about the collection. We will also look at how Indigenous community members are utilizing information gleaned from the study of the DMNS collection to revive traditional cultural practices. Dr. Steve Nash, Senior Curator of Archaeology and Director of Anthropology at DMNS, extended an invitation for me to author a book on the museum's collection of Plains Indian beadwork. When I first visited DMNS, I was immediately impressed by the scope of the collection. Much, though not all, of the Plains material was collected by Mary and Frances Crane, who were avid collectors of Native American art during the mid-20th century. The Cranes eventually donated their collection to the Denver Museum of Nature and Science in 1968. The collection includes late 19th and early 20th century beadwork from both Northern Plains and Southern Plains tribes. Given my research interest, I decided to focus on the Southern Plains material, particularly the Kiowa, Southern Cheyenne, and Southern Arapaho beadwork. The DMNS collection is truly impressive. For example, the museum is home to the largest collection of Kiowa women's leggings outside the Smithsonian Institution, and an impressive number of Cheyenne soft cradles, which I'll be talking more about later. From the outset, I wanted to ensure that the project would benefit not only the museum, but also the tribes, the source or descendant communities whose cultural heritage DMNS curates. As research on the DMNS beadwork collection began, I started reaching out to beadworkers in the Kiowa and Cheyenne and Arapaho communities. So far, DMNS has hosted six beadworkers. Three Kiowa beadworkers, Vanessa Jennings, Laverna Capes, and Kathy Dickerson, two Cheyenne artists, David Ramos and George Levi, and one Arapaho beadworker, Charlotte Lumpmouth. Each of these artists traveled to DMNS and spent several days in the collections with me. Together, we examined the objects. I interviewed the artists to learn more about how the objects were made and used, as well as their cultural significance. There really is no substitute for being able to examine an object in person. There are things one cannot discover unless one can actually handle an object. For example, I look for evidence of usewear. I can turn over a pair of moccasins, examine the soles, and see if they were worn. Examining several of the hide or buckskin dresses in the DMNS collection, we could see where they had been altered, either taken in or let out. Where is also an indication that these items were not made for the market, but rather for use within the artist's community. Such evidence of wear is also a reminder that these objects are more than museum specimens. Those intimate details remind you that these articles of clothing belong to people, people who wore them with pride, 
They were made with loving hands for family members. Early on during her visit to DMNS, Kiowa beadworker Vanessa Jennings noted that she was visiting relatives. Standing in the anthropology lab, looking at beaded moccasins and dresses, she observed, quote, this place is filled up right now. We're standing here. You can't see them, but all the elders who made that, those Kiowas are here. So I truly believe that when we come, it's an honor to be here. I'm just trying to help my people who are here. We just continue on trying to learn and perpetuate this knowledge, end quote. Other beadworkers expressed similar sentiments, noting that the objects retained a spiritual connection to the ancestors who had made and worn them. In the course of the project, we have learned a tremendous amount. The artists are able to help me situate these objects in their cultural context, and that's vital. For example, one of the Kiowa dresses is adorned with rows of cowrie shells. Vanessa Jennings explained that this dress likely belonged to a favored child, what the Kiowa call an ade maton. Examining the dress, she explained, quote, See the cowrie shells? Those are an imitation of the elk teeth. You know, elk teeth are highly prized, and it's usually the favorite one or the favorite daughter who wears them. And so this right here, this is telling you that this girl is special, end quote. As Vanessa noted, historically, prominent Kiowa families would have adorned a favorite daughter's dress with elk teeth. Each elk has two teeth that are ivory, and it was only those two teeth that were used on dresses. Dresses were sometimes adorned with over a hundred elk teeth. Such a dress was a visual statement regarding both the father's prowess as a hunter, his role as a provider, and the daughter's status. Later, once elk had been extirpated, people started substituting cowrie shells for elk ivories, and the cowrie shells carried the same meaning. The artists that I interviewed not only bead, but also fashion the garments and items which their beadwork embellishes. As such, it is not surprising that in examining objects in the DMNS collection, several artists commented at length on the materials employed in their construction, especially natural materials such as hide and sinew. For example, hides have a certain amount of elasticity or stretchiness that must be taken into consideration when laying out a garment. Otherwise, the item simply will not fit properly. Both Vanessa Jennings and Kathy Dickerson pointed out that Kiowa clothing was intended to fit snugly. Discussing a pair of women's leggings, Kathy Dickerson noted, they should fit like a sock when you put them on because of the stretch of the hide and how you cut the moccasin top out of it. She noted that one must pay close attention when cutting out the legging to ensure that the hide stretches in the proper direction. During her visit to DMNS, Vanessa Jennings noted that Kiowa women honored the animals who furnished the hides used to make clothing. The DMNS collection includes several pairs of Kiowa women's boots. Vanessa explained that Kiowa people refer to these items, which extend to just below the knee and are intended to cover the wearer's lower legs, as leggings. Handling one pair, she pointed out the deer hair still attached to the flaps that hang down from the top of the leggings. She explained that this was not merely decorative, noting that when Kaiba women tanned hides, they often left a small patch of hair on the hide to honor the animal, allowing it to retain a bit of its natural appearance. For the artists, one of the benefits of the project was the opportunity to examine examples of objects which have fallen out of use within their communities. George Levi, a Southern Cheyenne artist, was particularly taken by the soft cradles in the DMNS collection. 
George and I measured and photographed several of the cradles and sketched details of their construction. He later explained that he and his wife planned to host cradle-making classes in their home, sharing the information gleaned from the study of the cradles in the DMNS collection with members of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. This example illustrates the ways in which museum collections can serve as a catalyst for grassroots cultural preservation and revitalization efforts. In fact, the project yielded results in this regard. In 2019, Max Baer, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Cheyenne and Arapaho Tribes, visited DMNS and viewed the collections, including several Cheyenne soft cradles. Max and his companion were expecting, and he was inspired to make and bead a soft cradle for their son. Using George Levi's photos, sketches, and measurements of the soft cradles at DMNS, Max beaded a beautiful cradle for his son. We've also incorporated outreach and engagement activities as part of the project. During his February 2019 visit, George Levi noted that elders from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes would be attending the upcoming Denver March powwow and inquired if it might be possible for them to visit the museum while in Denver. I approached the DMNS staff, who were excited about the prospect of hosting the elders. DMNS devoted significant staff and resources to ensuring that the elders' visit was a success. During their visit on March 22, 2019, over 50 elders had the opportunity to go behind the scenes at the museum and view items from the Cheyenne and Arapaho collections. One of the challenges of conducting collections-based research is the fact that some community members may not be able to travel to visit the collections. For example, individuals may have health conditions that preclude them from traveling. I believe that it is incumbent upon scholars and museum professionals to find ways to address these obstacles. Consequently, I decided to conduct community outreach programs for members of the Kiowa tribe and Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes living in Oklahoma. These community meetings would also enable me to identify tribal members interested in contributing information to the project and to schedule interviews. During these interviews, individuals would be asked to comment on photos of the objects in the DMNS collections. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 outbreak forced the postponement of this fieldwork. Ultimately, research on the Denver Museum of Nature and Science's Southern Plains Beadwork Collection has provided opportunities for community outreach and engagement. It has underscored the mutually beneficial nature of projects that seek to connect members of indigenous communities with museum collections. Not only has the museum learned a tremendous amount about the objects in its stewardship, but tribal members have been able to reconnect with tangible aspects of their cultural heritage. Indeed, the project has served as a catalyst for cultural revitalization efforts. While the COVID-19 pandemic forced the cancellation of the community outreach programs and ethnographic interviews originally scheduled to take place last summer, my colleagues at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and I remain committed to the research project. I eagerly look forward to reconnecting with our tribal partners and resuming our work. Our final guest today is Matthew Hunter, an assistant professor of English who focuses on poetry and drama of the 16th and 17th centuries. Dr. Hunter's scholarship helps us see how for early modern audiences, Plays worked not just as entertainment, but also as models for behavior. 
As Matt argues for us here, drama was an art that compelled reality to follow its lead. Hello, I'm Matt Hunter, Assistant Professor of English, and I'd like to spend a little time talking with you today about my research, which focuses on the drama of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. To start, I want to point to a funny moment in The School of Compliment, James Shirley's Comedy of Manners from 1631. In it, a crew of hapless young gallants attend the school of the comedy's title in order to learn the language of love. Because those who can't do teach, their professor naturally knows nothing of this subject, which is why he instructs his students to repeat to their mistresses the following line, Oh, that I were a flea upon thy lip, there would I suck forever, and not skip. It's a comically club-footed pickup, made all the more bumbling by its imperfect imitation of Romeo and Juliet. In that play, famously, Romeo breaks into the Capulet garden, beholds Juliet pining from the safety of her window, and declares to himself, Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. Shirley's comedy might seem to be taking a jab at Shakespeare's tragedy, which is never far from the mawkish, the overdone, the embarrassingly cliched. But it's the argument of my book, The Pursuit of Style in Early Modern Drama, that Shirley's asking us to laugh at something else something that was quite common in the 16th and 17th centuries. He's satirizing the practice of quoting the plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries in everyday conversations. So far from self-contained fictions cordoned off from their social milieus, plays like Romeo and Juliet operated for their audiences and their readers as conversation manuals. Like, like Shirley's hapless teacher, they offered valuable instruction in mastering various styles of talk. We get a sharper sense of this practice when we turn from play scripts of the early modern period to other kinds of texts. The Academy of Compliments, for example, is a conversation manual that was popular enough to merit several reprintings throughout the 17th century. The book provides its readers with memorable and charismatic turns of phrase to apply to various subjects pertaining to love, from the cruelty of love to the effects of love to the force of love. Among these headings, the entry for The Parting of Lovers is particularly revealing, for the passage it provides comes straight from the mouth of Shakespeare's most lovelorn, tragic hero. Love goes towards love, as schoolboys from their books, but love from love towards school with heavy looks. These are the lines that Romeo delivers to Juliet as he prepares to leave her company after breaking into the enclosed Capulet Garden. The inclusion of the passage in a conversation manual published nearly a century after Shakespeare's tragedy is a testament to its curiously enduring appeal. The tragedy, that is, was not simply popular, but popular because of its decorated turns of phrase, which readers and playgoers sought to import into their own conversations. This peculiar popularity becomes more evident when we turn to other conversation manuals from the period. England's Parnassus, for instance, is a printed commonplace book published in 1600, and it is one of the first works to excerpt passages from Shakespeare's works for readers to quote, in their own writing. So it's especially noteworthy that the volume includes its fair share of extracts from Romeo and Juliet, not least of them being Romeo's weepy rumination that love is a smoke made with fume of sighs, being purged a fire sparkling in lover's eyes. For students of Shakespeare's tragedy, it perhaps comes as something of, su something of a surprise to learn that such lines could get singled out for future quotation, riddled as they are by Petrarchan cliché. But it's just such passages that the playgoer Edward Pudsey copied into his commonplace book. His handwriting is difficult to parse, but Pudsey would seem to have been a devoted fan of Shakespeare's tragedy, transcribing its most maudlin passages for future use. 
If this practice seems strange or outlandish to us today, one need only look to the intersections between fashion and media to find a present-day example of life similarly imitating art, of styles on the screen shaping the styles off of it. Think, for instance, of magazines like Vogue or television shows like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. These works do not simply chronicle trends in dress. Each issue or episode stipulates rules for properly fashionable attire, elaborating for publics styles of dress which may be imitated in daily life. And just, just as styles of dress furnish us with all kinds of armor for presenting ourselves in public, so, my book argues, did the styles of early modern plays offer their audiences valuable accoutrement for presenting themselves in public. Then, as now, to go out into public is to assemble a self that's different from the person we are in private. Our public encounters place us in the company of strangers, opening to, open to their scrutiny, their approval, their contact, and they turn us into strangers too. Today, the strategies and scripts that we have for engaging in public behavior are numerous. They range from fashionable dress to commodified talk to calculated gesture, and their proliferation is a testament to how normalized the public has become as an animated as an animating condition of our social interactions. But as my book argues, the very experience of being in public was a novel and vexing experience in the London of Shakespeare's moment. During the 16th and the 17th centuries, London expanded at a famously rapid rate. From a glorified town of 50,000 residents in 1500, it had swelled into a thrumming metropolis of 250,000 residents in 1600, and its population would continue to rise over the ensuing decades. The effect of these expansions, I argue, was to transform the nature of the social interactions that unfolded there. A consequence of the rapid influx of citizens was that everyone, in the words of one Londoner, lived in the eye of others. Everyone, in other words, was unnervingly public to everyone else. The pursuit of style shows that the plays of Shakespeare and his contemporaries provided a compelling solution to this novel problem of urban life. At a moment when the arts of language held a cultural capital that would never again be equaled, the varied styles of plays by Shakespeare and others furnished audiences with scripts for comporting themselves in public. Each chapter of my book considers a different highly codified style of talk, and the social relations that it is shown to produce. One chapter, for instance, turns to Romeo and Juliet in order to consider a style of talk that I'm calling love talk. Decorated in the most overdone of ways, love talk is a style that is ever courting its own cliché. And it is that very modeling quality, I argue, that lends love talk its special power, the power to construe the unfolding conversation as an episode in a familiar love story. Another chapter turns to Love Talk's opposite, Plain Talk, a style that is studiously stripped of modifier, prolixity, and rhetorical figures. Celebrated by a wide range of writers, readers, and playwrights, Plain Talk, I argue, dissolves the boundaries between the private and the public by projecting a speaker who is, or seems to be, exactly in public as he is in private. Yet another chapter considers a style of cacophonous invective I am terming tough talk, whose stirring power is to establish a vicarious relation with an otherwise absent audience. So at heart, this is a project about the relationship between social life and aesthetic experience in early modern London. Its animating insight is that early modern drama is an art that compelled reality to follow its lead. Playgoers were trained from an early age to copy the language of the stage in their speech, 
And at the turn of the 16th century into the 17th, the words that they copied were more than just words. They were models of comportment that helped them to interact with others in a city whose rapid expansions had made everyone into a stranger to everyone else. The relentless anonymity of urban life spurred dreams of its opposite, of standing out, of being a somebody rather than a nobody, of being a person instead of a stranger. Drama breathed life into this fantasy. Performed by strangers and to strangers, early modern plays ennobled different styles of talk as important forms of social competence in a newly public world. Then, as now, style was a fantasy of public address. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Matt. Finally, to close today's show, we'll turn to a spotlight on graduate student research in the humanities here at Texas Tech. Since last summer, the Humanities Center has been developing its relationship with the National Humanities Center in North Carolina by sponsoring TTU doctoral students' participation in the NHC's twice-yearly virtual seminars. Here to speak about his participation in one of those seminars is Yurko Sepulveda, a specialist in Spanish linguistics with the Department of Classical and Modern Languages and Literatures. Yurko was the first student the Humanities Center selected to represent Texas Tech in this national initiative, and we're honored to sponsor his work. Hello, thank you for having me. My name is Yerko Sepulveda. I am a PhD candidate in Spanish linguistics in the Department of Classical and Modern Languages and Literatures at Texas Tech University. And I am very excited to be here and happy to share with you some of my own experiences, particularly with the residency I did last summer uh, in the National Humanities Center. Uh, I was um, selected as one of the graduate students representing Texas Tech University. And um, this experience in the National Humanities Center was very powerful for me, particularly because within my own field, uh, there's so much you can do connected to the research that many scholars and my own professors have done. But when you uh, get out of this shell and you start exchanging ideas and learning from other people who are doing also incredible things in other fields, truly complements um, your uh, perspectives as well as uh, the different collaborations you may have. Particularly, I concentrate on the development of intercultural competence in the foreign language classroom. That's where I do my research. And that's also connected to my own work as a language teacher, particularly a Spanish teacher. So, um, Having the opportunity to, uh, again, talk to people from history departments, from English departments, from philosophy departments, um, and, and so many others allow me to, um, learn with and from, uh, other studies and other ways to see the world. Um, we are all biased by our own research, right? So particularly for me, uh, as a linguist, uh, there's, different path, uh, pathways you would take as a linguist to explore these ideas of being interculturally competent. Uh, so having the space to talk to other people truly gave me new perspectives, new worldviews, and also uh, challenged some of my ideas to continue exploring how to deal with uh, manifestations of pre prejudice and discrimination, uh, hate speech, and then also 
how naturally, you know, locally, nationally, internationally, what we see today is overt demonstrations of lack of understanding, intolerance, lack of empathy and injustice while societies become more and more diverse. So I am truly convinced that my work is not only in my classroom teaching Spanish, but it is all about how I help my students to prepare for a world that is very complex um, in which there's more division today rather than uh, a space that is more equitable and um, and exchanging ideas in with a multidisciplinary lens was very helpful for me. I believe we all need to continue working on the connection between theory and practice and it is our responsibility to build bridges uh, because many of the things we write about or many of the things we read about uh, sometimes don't make it back to society um, for a, for citizens like teachers or people on the streets and they they just remain at a very theoretical level um, and having this opportunity at the National Humanities Center really helped me to uh, explore how other people are actually creating these breaches uh, between theory and practice and at the end of the day how we as doctoral candidates um, uh, or um, there were some postdoctoral students as well there, um, but also we learned from um, incredible professors who were there and uh, they continue doing their research and advancing their fields, but at the same time making strong and clear connections to uh, societal issues that we see um, every single day. So for me, the biggest takeaway is uh, the importance of uh, going beyond your own field. I think it's so important. And then the humanities um, as a whole, uh, we have a history of connecting ideas with each other and having um, conversations and exploring themes together. And I think that in academia, uh, we should go back to uh, the very nature of the humanities, uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be in a circle sharing stories and exploring ideas together. I believe that unless we have this systems thinking approach uh, to solve societal issues for those of us who are exploring um, uh, and doing research connected to uh, the development of identity, the development of society, and then how people participate in society. I think it's very important that we learn from each other. And that's exactly what uh, the National Humanities Center does, as well as the Humanities Department um, and the Humanities Center at our university at Texas Tech. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity and uh, I'm looking forward to other possibilities in which we can continue exploring themes together from multiple perspectives. So thank you for having me again. It's been a pleasure. That brings us to the close of another episode of Humanities Now. We hope that you'll join us for the next two episodes as we learn more from this year's Alumni College Fellows as they discuss their research and provide us with so many new perspectives on what it means to be human. As always, thank you to the Humanities Center staff, Justin Hughes and Callie Watson, and to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. We'll see you next month. <laughs>